0: Welcome to Knot Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 3, Episode 6, The Look of the Scots Gaelic Language. Three stories about race and kinship. Our guest, Michael Newton, is returning to the podcast for the second time. Michael earned his PhD in Celtic Studies from the University of Edinburgh in 1998 and was assistant professor in the Celtic Studies Department of St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia from 2008 to 2013. He has written a multitude of books and articles about Gaelic culture and history, and is a leading authority on Scottish Gaelic heritage in North America. In 2018, he was recognized with the International Award at the annual Scottish Gaelic Awards in Glasgow, Scotland. His most recent book is called Into the Fairy Hill, classic folktales of the Scottish Highlands. He established the Hidden Glen Folk School of Scottish Highland Heritage in 2019 to teach a range of topics to students online and is reaching a global audience, including Scotland, the United States, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Well, I am so excited to have Michael Newton back on the podcast. He was with us in season one and now he returns to us here in season three. As is our way, on the show, we ask the story, or in this case, stories, to speak for themselves. And then we'll dive into all the ways that they still resonate for us today. So welcome, Michael. I'm glad you're here. Will you tell us a story?
1: Mimi shin. I will do that. In fact, I will tell you three stories that are short. And unlike a lot of the material that you've been having people share, all three of these stories happen on Turtle Island in North America. So I'm going to start with the first story based in Nova Scotia in the 19th century. And this happens in an area called the Kepoch, which is a mountainous area near Antigonish on the mainland of Nova Scotia. And I need to explain a little bit of the background, which is that, as you know, we're in the dark half of the year now. And during the dark half of the year, people, of course, love to come together and to share their traditions, and to share company, and to share food and drink. And two of these major ritual events are Halloween and New Year's. And there's various protocols of the various ways in which people come together, either announced or unannounced, or bearing this or doing that. And one of the protocols has to do with when there's a family at home, and somebody is coming to visit them and wanting to share a drink. And, you know, either the family might have something to drink and to share with the visitor, or they might not. So in the case that the visitor comes and there's nothing to share, then what happened would be the man or the woman of the house, after the visitor had gone around the house beating the walls with a stick, would say, and welcome in. And that meant basically, you can come in, but we don't have anything to share with you. However, if they did have a drink to share with them, they would expect the visitor to share poetry, to, to share a rhyme or a song. And so when they came back around to the front, the man or woman of the house would hold down the bar of the door, and they would say, "Gav guen, uh, recite your rhyme or you know, recite your poetry. And that person would have to recite something and then they'd be, be let in and they would share the drink so that's kind of the background you have to know first of all so in the kepoch at this time now this was a large gallic-speaking community in the 19th century one of the families there the head of the family was a man named Alastair mcdonald alexander Macdonald in english and he and his family were sitting down to a meal this long dark night and Suddenly there was a a large loud thump on the side of the wall, louder than that they typically were. And so Alistair said, Well, this must be an interesting visitor. I'm expecting something quite momentous. And the thumping kept going around. And of course, the lucky direction is Jay went clockwise around the house, shaking not only the walls, but even their cupboards and their fine china in the cupboards. And eventually the thumping came back around to the front door, and they did have drink. That evening. And so Alistair held down the bar to the door and he said, Gav the And from the other side of the door came this beautiful, elegant, deep Gallic voice. And this voice recited a little rhyme kasha, aran hagani, Rutan It's not butter or cheese or bread that I lack, but a wee bit of what is in the bottle that is what my gullet is after. And Alistair was very impressed with the Gallic and, and the voice. It wasn't anybody that he recognized, however. So he opened the door, and much to his surprise, there was a large man with very dark skin and a large head of woolly hair, somebody that he'd never seen before and certainly didn't expect. And he said, well, you can't be the devil, because it said the devil can speak all languages but Gallic, and your, your Gallic is perfect. So come in and he came in and he offered him a drink and they started to share stories and songs and Alistair again was very impressed with this Gallic. and he said you know what's your name and he said Alexander Macdonald, the very same name that he had and so they spent the rest of the evening the the guest and the family sharing songs and stories and so good was this Gallic, and so masterful was his expertise in the song tradition and the story tradition that he was entertained all week in the community there at the kepoch. so there's story number one i'll go to story number two now so in story number two we're going to uh, start out with this emigrant who leaves bjarnreinherog one of the western isles and he initially goes to glengarry ontario but he's not there long when there's news of the gold rush in the Yukon. So this is the late 1800s. And he goes to the Yukon and he meets up with a couple of other Gaelic speakers. And they're not there long when they end up in Alaska, because there's a gold rush in Alaska. And they have a cabin that they're staying in when they're there to do this work. And they ran ran out of supplies. So the two brothers had to go into town to get supplies. And this man, his name was uh, Donald McLeod, Donald MacLeod, he stayed behind in this cabin. And Donald was there, you know, at the time there was a terrible storm going on, howling wind and rain and cold, not the kind of weather you want to be walking around in. So Donald was there sitting warm by the fire in the cabin, reading a story, and the story, apparently the devil was part of the story. And so as he's sitting there reading the story, that's kind of frightening comes a knock at the door. And he says, who could that be? Is it the devil himself? So he went to the door and who was at the door, but a, an Indian boy. And the Indian boy said, um, do you mind if I come in and get have some coffee with you? So uh, Chuking says, Donald, you know, come in. And he let him in and they sat at the table and Donald start, started making some coffee there in the fire. And the Indian boy says, uh, so what's your name? And he says, Donald. And the Indian boy says, that's my name, too. He says, what's your second name? And he says, uh, McLeod. And he says, that's my name, too. Do You speak Gaelic. And they began speaking together in Gaelic there in the cabin. And it turned out that the, the Indian boy, well, his father was a, was a Gael who had left Scotland and gotten involved in the fur trade and he married a native woman. And as was the common practice at the time, the boy would have grown up speaking Gaelic and his mother's native language and English because people were multilingual. That was very much the norm at the time. So that's story number two. And I'll just mention really briefly that I collected that story from Donald's son, Neil, who was a very old man in Vancouver at the time when I met him. And he was full of really interesting stories, including ones about his father and the life of uh, Gaelic-speaking communities in Vancouver when he was young. Uh, There were plenty of Gales at the time. And so now I'll go very close to home because I have a story from North Carolina, from the Cape Fear. Now, not not the West, not the mountains. That's not where the Gales were. The Gales were in the, the Southeast area of North Carolina in the Cape Fear. And in the early 19th century, there were barges that went up and down the Cape Fear River and they would go especially in between uh, Fayetteville and Wilmington carrying goods back and forth and there were various barges and they were manned by various crews and at the time there was a crew that was a bunch of men who were from the island of isla people often know the, the name isla because of whiskey but this is a you know a fairly large island it was even to the present day has lots and lots of Gaelic speakers But there were many people from Isla who came to the Cape Fear of the Carolinas. And that boat was run by a man named James McLaughlin. And all of the crew was Gaelic speaking at the time. And amongst the other boats, there was also a barge that was manned by a black crew. And they had their duties going back and forth between the same the same locations. And on that crew, there was a man named Tom. But Tom felt like he didn't really belong with that crew. Because his native language was Gaelic, and he much more enjoyed the company of the Islemen uh, who spoke his language and knew his traditions. And so, whenever his crew, the Black crew, was called to the barge, he would say, I- I'm not feeling very well. I need to rest and stay at home. I can't really do this shift with you. However, when McLaughlin's crew, the Islemen, were called to their barge, he would sneak in and join the crew and kind of lay low until they went past a certain bend in the river the Cape Fear River and as soon as they went past that bend and he couldn't be seen anymore by the people in the warehouse he would jump up and begin singing Gallic songs and dancing and there was one in particular that's recorded that he sang and it went like this Sound sound in Ballinabi, Rugg me, so hokug me. Sound in Ballinabi, Vami, Harriv. Sound in Ballinabi, Rugg me, so hokug me. Sound in Ballinabi, Vami, Harriv. That means it's in the township of Ballinabi that I was born and raised and that I always lived. And what's interesting about this, this is a well-known tune, but the usual words for this say, it is in the island of Isla that I was born and raised, and that I always lived. And he's showing that he knows the geography so well that this obscure little town that only other people from Isla would know about is where he's claiming his kinship rather than the entire island. So there is story number three to round out that selection of stories from Gaelic, North America.
0: And song. I have to say the song brought tears to my eyes in the best possible (laughs) way. Oh, Michael, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for giving us these stories to braid together and to explore together. Thank you. I'm gonna begin with something that's painfully obvious, but I think still needs to be said. And that's just the sense of the power of the language itself that's contained in all of these stories. There was that slight little mention you said about in Vancouver, there once were many Gaelic speakers. And just that once there were just really caught me as so very poignant and so very important to this moment where we are in terms of understanding the power and presence of minority languages, where we are now with how we preserve them and how we preserve the stories. So can we start there in that place that I know is something that territory you know so well, but feels important to speak to? And then we'll get into all the various ways in which different people from across the world shared such commonalities in the language in the sense of place.
1: Sure. I mean, it was recorded, for example, that uh, there were Gaelic-speaking people from Scotland who visited and they went back and forth. And I've got various commentary from people who are observing the fact there are people from various origins who became members of the Gaelic community because they could speak the language and they could share the songs and they could they could recite stories. And these various people, on the one hand, they're kind of surprised that there's people who look very unlike the people back home, but are fluent Gaelic speakers. But on the other hand, it's a source of strength to say this language is resilient enough that it can be shared by many different people and that it has many different kinds of members who enrich it in various ways. Yeah, I mean, I'm in North Carolina, not far from me where I'm living now in Chapel Hill. There used to be a large Gaelic-speaking community, and it's all gone. I've met a good number of people who tell me that their grandparents spoke Gaelic, and they would sometimes you know, use it amongst themselves, or they use various phrases. But it, that's long gone now in terms of the Native population. Now, I, I speak Gaelic to my daughter. She's a fluent Gaelic speaker. She'd be, you know, the first child probably in a 100 years or more who is a Gaelic speaker. And I think it's really enriched her understanding of Scottish history and Gaelic tradition. She tells traditional stories herself, but she's also in a Spanish medium school. And she can relate, I think, much better to the kind of plight that people have that are not, you know, native English speakers or who are, I don't know, looked down at and dismissed because they don't speak English. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have cultures coming into contact, you have various possibilities. That can be an enriching possibility or that can be a source of conflict and tension. It depends on one's own attitude about identity. And what's sad about the Anglophone world is that it's been a very imperial one, a very colonial one for centuries now. And the assumption is that english has to be the dominant language it has to have control and if it doesn't it feels threatened
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love how in your daughter you had mentioned that sense of trilinguality was part of the story of the boy out in, in alaska i think was where they were at that mm-hmm. point and having his mother's tongue having his father's tongue and having english and i love that your daughter has has that blend of spanish and gaelic and english as well
1: i think having Two languages at home made it pretty easy for her to pick up Spanish at school right
0: right well there's so much in these stories and I guess we'll begin at the beginning in a way in that sense of take us up now what's out oh, by An- Anagonish what's the name of the town
1: Kepach is Kepoch. the name of the, where that community Area. was where the story happened and well one thing I'll just I'll just say that it's really interesting to me that there's no connection between these stories. Right, People who told these stories didn't know about the other stories, but they have these things in common that tell you a lot about the Gallic mentality, mm-hmm. about the things that Gales value and perceive as being important to them. Right. And you have this commonality that the language and the storytelling and song tradition are really key identifiers or markers of when you are a member of a community, of a Gallic community. Mm-hmm. And then you also have this idea that now you know you don't want to say that like gales no gales ever saw people who look different from them that's not the case but certainly seeing people who are so different from they were was not a regular occurrence and for them to be gallic speaking would have been a source of surprise so that is a motif you get a number in a number of these stories too but even to go back in time maybe i'll go back in time for a minute if you don't mind sure the encounter between cultures has always happened. And if we go back to our earliest our, well, some of our earlier Gallic sources, there's the conflict between the Norse and the Gaels. Mm-hmm. The Norse were this invading culture who were very alien to the Gaels because they were pagan at a time that the Gaels were not pagan. You know, they were at least nominally Christian. And you have several centuries of conflict between Gaels and the Norse that has a symbolic resonance of this kind of othering and of course later you have the anglo normans invading and then you have kind of you know what do you do about the english after they, they go native the, the old english who become gaelicized and then you have the new english coming so whenever there is an encounter between different cultures there's a question about who is the insider and who is the outsider mm. how do you know who belongs to your community and it, what is the definition of belonging to a community and these questions of identity and certainly language has always been a part of that but one of the early and interesting examples of this is the second battle of moitura right so you have this major conflict between the tour of day and the fomorians they're kind of these these oppositional groups and so they think well maybe if we have a king who's half two of day and fomorian We'll set up breasts, right? Breast the beautiful. And he will be this kind of mediating figure. Well, it doesn't turn out so well. They knew who he was. And they thought maybe he could sort of bridge the divide, but he ends up not being a good king. He kind of negates what the ideals of kinship are. And then the stranger comes that they've never seen before. They don't know who he is. Luke, right? And he, he mentions all of these traits and qualities and skills that he has. And he's also half Tuatha and half Fomorian, But even though he was the unknown outsider, he ends up bringing to them the qualities that they need to reassert their own sovereignty. Hmm. And it's it's believed that the earliest textual versions that we have of that story were written during the time when the Norse were starting to settle in the Gallic world. And so there would have been the same questions about which of the Norse do we want to let into our communities? And to what degree do we want to, or are we able to accommodate these outsiders who are flooding into our land? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And that brings in that, what I thought when you were listing out the commonalities between the stories, I thought you'd mention too, that sense of the welcome and the falcha. And that's that feels like that's exactly in what you just spoke of, but knowing that that always had to be a choice and that there was something at stake here that does say, yes, the rules of hospitality say that no matter what, when someone comes and knocks upon the door, whether we have something to share or not, you will be let in except, well, hmm, and there'd be all the traditions in which there would have been a choice to do something otherwise, right?
1: And notice, too, that the idea of tradition, song tradition, story tradition, that is a kind of sustenance. They're bringing that into the home and they get food, but that tradition is also something that sustains people. And that is a contribution to the Kaylee, similar to the, to the story that I told previously, (laughs) but now, you know, instead of talking about identity around gender before, now we're talking about identity around language and culture and, and other kinds of issues.
0: Right. Right. So if we do take it to that first story, I'm curious. So we have, Alistair Macdonald in both stories was part of the story that was given to you. The mystery of who the visitor was.
1: Well, in that story from the Kepoch in, in Nova Scotia, the man who comes to the house, we know that his name is Alexander Macdonald or Alastair Donald Macdonald, and it's also in in the. So I have this from a newspaper, mm. in an early 20th century newspaper. And it also says he's from Marguerite, which is an area in Cape Breton, but it's, you know, it's fairly far away from the Keppoch on the mainland. So people would, might go back and forth, but it it would be a very long trip. Right. But the interesting thing in two of the stories anyway, is that this idea that this is somebody who looks so different and, and actually reflects the kind of stereotypes of the devil in Gaelic. So in Gaelic, The devil, one of the nicknames for the devil is Doldu, which means black haired Donald. Mm. So, like in a lot of European traditions, having dark skin is the opposite of what you normally see. That's just not how Europeans look. And so it's very alien. Mm. So, this figure who initially you think is this the devil, but it ends up being a mirror image of the very same person. Mm. So, you have the question of othering. And then kind of a negation of that initial impression of othering where they're actually the same same name it's just a mirror image of the of the same person and in fact that person who seems so alien earns the respect of the people because of his mastery of their own language and culture
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. See, this this is that whole thing of, of course, as host, I get to think on my feet because I've never heard the story before. (laughs) And that sense of like, how on is my English major right now to be able to analyze the stories right there with you. But thank you for offering us that. Yes, of course, it is that sense of that mirror and of that reflecting. And it makes me think so often, of course, the Celtic beauty ideal being you know the skin as white as snow and the hair as dark as the raven's wings and the lips as red as blood. And knowing that that was passed on through so many stories going over time, how does it shift the narrative all of a sudden to say, oh wait, appearances will change. And of course, all these stories, a common thread is that the Gales have left their homeland and they you know went out in seeking new experiences by choice or because they had to. But I'm thinking back to our boatman on, on Cape Fear, and of course he was he would have been from home, and so of course there would have been people of color in Scotland in these periods. It isn't just they had to come emigrate where people would have learned the language necessarily from North America, right?
1: Well, it's it's not clear that story where where that man Tom was from. Okay. So it may be that he was raised amongst Isla men, that mm. that was his his home community. Uh, it w- might've been in the Cape Fear, but amongst people with that background. Oh, I mean, it could have been also that he was somehow born in Isla and came over to the Cape Fear. It's, it's not known. But what's interesting about that very short story is that he proves being an insider because of his knowledge of, both kind of the song tradition and the geography. And these are very, very typical Gallic ways of expressing belonging and identity. So when when you know the tradition, you see those as very common motifs and you see it appearing in a story like that, you can appreciate that like, that's the way that that person in the story is expressing a sense of belonging and being a member of the community. And it's also, so you also think about like, who is telling the story and why are they telling the story? They're telling the story because number one, wow, we're in this new place where all of these unusual things are happening, or these unusual people that we didn't encounter before, but there's still a continuity in an understanding of what being a member of our community means. Right. Right. And this is so important, I think, because of the kind of world that we live in now, that's we're seeing a reassertion of racialization. And whiteness. And I very much push against this because number one, the Gallic community has always been diverse. Mm-hmm. And number two, Gallic identity and culture and community is about the language and the, and the tradition and the culture. It's not about your genes. And it's never been about that. Right. Surnames are irrelevant, family trees only give you a little bit of the picture. And so What Gallic tradition tells us time and again is that people who have good genes end up leaving the community because they don't have a meaningful way to participate. Mm -hmm. And there are people coming from other origins, whether genetic origins or geographical origins, who end up moving to the center of the culture because they are capable of participating in a meaningful way. Mm.
0: Oh, I'm glad we got here because of course this is part of the reason why I you know we spoke in our last conversation as you mentioned before we got into gender and all of the ways in which there's the stereotypes around you know who the masculine highlander warrior is springing from a similar well perhaps is that sense that the whiteness and the white supremacy that has really taken on the celtic the gaelic identity as a marker and as well a dog whistle in a lot of ways too right
1: i would say that it's very misleading and dangerous to take irishness or celticness as a proxy for whiteness right. you know number one it's historically inaccurate because it's only in the 20th century that celtic peoples have been kind of become unambiguously white and and even so there are some kind of fuzzy edges Mm-hmm. But certainly, in the nineteenth century, there was a sense that that Celtic peoples and gales, in particular were an inferior race mm-hmm. and second-class citizens, not very desirable. And which is why so many gales did their best to assimilate, because that was the only way to climb any kind of economic social ladder in an Anglo-dominated society. So they took the max off of their names. They didn't teach the language to their children because it was a source of prejudice. They did their best to sort of accommodate what that dominant Anglophone sense of bourgeois middle-class accomplishment was supposed to look like. And that was supposed to look like an Anglo-Saxon.
0: Right, right. Which is so interesting considering in the sense that maintaining Gallic identity in Scotland, particularly in the Highlands, would have been at great cost, I would suppose, or just you know, every, I would presume when every succeeding generation, at least every century, it became more and more difficult. But it's in the leaving of their country that they become more Anglo-Saxon than ever before. When, you know, of course we know that North America was in many ways, was colonized by many peoples, but it was in so many ways that Anglo-Saxon English perspective that, offered the identity we know in Canada and North America. But it just seems so interesting to me that in that travel from their homeland, they actually became more aligned with some of those Anglo-Saxon English perspectives than they would have at home. Which again, in certain ways is an obvious statement, I suppose, but it's also just fascinating in that sense of coming to America to become more English, or at least more Anglo-Saxon, is just part of that Modern puzzle of colonialism that you know we we know this at a certain level, but it's one of those things that I realize we benefit in starting to name some of that because it's just been the way things are. What's the point of remarking on it? Of course, in the same way that that cruelty of saying in America we speak English, we've all heard that said with such venom,
1: or speak white, speak white. Yes, which shows you that the whiteness and Anglo-Saxonness are are equivalent.
0: Mm, yes,
1: yes. I do want to sort of problematize that a little bit in that the Irish Gaelic experience was pretty different from the Scottish Gaelic experience in a lot of ways for the immigrants, because quite often, at, at least initially, Scottish Gaels went to rural areas, which is mm-hmm. why those stories that I told show you that Gaelic was still very much alive in the community, sometimes for one or two or three or four generations. In fact, in Nova Scotia, something we're we're on like fifth or sixth or seventh generation now, and they're still Gaelic speakers. So, mm-hmm. uh, for Scottish Gales, being able to settle densely in reconstituted communities in rural areas gave them, for a time anyway, the ability to maintain what they had. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Irish Gales, to a you know to the most extent, this is not always true, but to a very large extent they went to urban centers. And so they were, it was much more difficult for Irish to have a foothold that was not constantly choked kind of from the beginning by Anglophone dominant group. So, you know, whereas Scottish Gales, being uh, in, in remote rural areas gave them a time where there was enough autonomy for it to survive, then, you know, eventually you have formal institutions like education coming in the latter part of the 1800s and, you know, saying you have to speak English in schools, you have to go to school, Gallic is not allowed here, all that sort of mm-hmm. thing, bit by bit, that started to impinge on people's daily lives and their sense of self-image and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, some Scottish Gales went to other places like Ontario, where there were much more immediately surrounded by Anglophone environments. But other in other places and even in the North North Carolina Cape fear, there were three, four, or five generations of Gallic speakers. Right.
0: Right. I really appreciate that distinction. Thank you. And I I'm, I'm thinking to my one line of Gallic family that would have come to the mermachis in New Brunswick, well they got subsumed by this by the French speakers. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> But, yeah, you know, we can't um, forget about the French either. I mean, they they had their colonies in various places, especially in the north and right. gales in some areas such as Quebec uh, ended up becoming francophones rather than English, mm-hmm. but you know, it was basically you know one empire or the other.
0: Right, exactly. Were you more of a fur trader or were you going to be working on, on the sea, <laughs> right? Oh, <Yeah. laughs> uh, so I would love to open this up and ask you in in coming here with these stories what other topics difficult and otherwise did you want to explore with these stories
1: well i think that they're interesting reflections on the ways in which gales have understood what their culture means what their identity how it's expressed Mm -hmm. and there's i think important distinctions between that and the way that people imagine it now and the way in which People use having a Gallic or a Celtic, presumed Celtic heritage, to equate with whiteness. Mm-hmm. There's examples, Boston being one very good example of there are very right-wing extremist violent groups, like Proud Boys or whoever, who like to don the symbols of Gaelicness, such as kilts. There's one of these figures, I think his name is Gavin McInnes or something, who has a very Gaelic name. He's a leader. I think he was an instigator of one of these extremist groups who thinks that it's very sad that Scotland is so woke, you know, so liberal and so left-wing. He thinks it's very, for him, unnatural. He's very proud of his Gaelicness and he equates it with whiteness. But clearly they're ignoring the fact that the Gael's and the Anglophone's were, extreme, were at each other's throats for hundreds of years, and the Gales right. were at the receiving end of it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating to realize how comfortable certain folks feel in inherited racism. You know, They want to know that that is in their blood and in their bones, rather than saying that's an acquired idea that you're using for yourself in this particular generation. It's a very good chance that your great-grandfathers and great-grandmothers would have rejected you for this odious at the the least least strong word i can find perspective on race and wokeness
1: <laughs> well it's also an indication about how things change because mm. the very idea of whiteness you know it's a fairly recent idea fairly recent right. invention and the right. boundaries of what was included within whiteness and what was outside of it has changed over time right. so in the 19th century early 19th century you know, it was a fairly simple idea where anglophones were very much at the center of whiteness and celtic peoples were kind of on the outside of that as were all these groups that started coming in larger numbers in the like the 1870s you know italians and lebanese people and people from you know eastern europe they were not white people jewish people were not white people you know these are all fairly recent absorptions as the boundaries number one the boundaries of whiteness have expanded but also these various groups have generally done their best to accommodate what the expectations of being white means and how you act that and how you show that how you present yourself Mm -hmm. so as to be accommodated within that because what option did people have they didn't have the options of saying let's just pretend this race thing doesn't exist and let's just ignore it or push against it and resist it that that was very difficult like that was not really a very viable proposition and so sadly i mean this is kind of a common pattern throughout history that that people tend to want to accommodate the dominant group or power in order to get that power rather than necessarily trying to deconstruct what the ideologies and practices of control and exploitation and domination are they tend to sort of get inside and then practice them on others. And we can see this replaying in so many different ways.
0: Yeah, right, and then and then the excuse is, well, hey, I just have to worry about feeding my family and getting through the week, I'm doing what I gotta do. And then that just keeps rolling things along and we realize what's been not only perpetuated, but has grown in ways that all of a sudden we look at, well, where we are right now in this 21st century moment. So I'm curious what your experience has been in the academy for the last 20 years, but both in teaching and looking at it from the outside, like how have things changed in terms of this conversation wasn't necessarily being had 20 years ago when I was an Irish studies major. Um, You know, there was the one class of taking that, the. Harlem Renaissance and the, Celt- and the Celtic Twilight period, and looking at those side by side. But these new questions, which we need to be asking, and these conversations, which we, mean- we have needed to have been having all along, as they emerge, how are you watching them change the way people, whether it's doing scholarship or just engaging in, in conversations and questions of what it means to be Gaelic in this day?
1: Well, on the one hand, what I've seen over the last 10 years is unfortunately to a very large degree in popular discourse a kind of ossification or reification of ideas of genetic racial identities i think in the early obama years there was kind of an optimism that maybe we could be a lot more fluid about it and not going to be so fixed in our ideas about race and in my opinion both the left and the right have both converge to a very large degree on accepting race mm-hmm. in some sort of fixed physical way, which I think is kind of a problem. It means you can never get out of those categories, right? Unless right. everybody is mixes their their genes and then suddenly we can't do it. And that's just not realistic. I mean, maybe that'll happen, but, you mm-hmm. know, that could take a long time. Like we need, we need justice now. Right. So given that, another problem that happens is that because people assume that Gaels and Celtic peoples are white and that white is a real category, therefore Gaelic culture, Gaelic history, Gaelic anything, well, that's covered by the academy because the the academy covers white people. I mean, that's a complete misrepresentation. Like, in what way is Gaelic covered? It's not covered. The the language isn't there. The, The literature is not there history is not there. So we have to think a little bit more broadly about what these categories mean and what they actually include and what they actually exclude. Mm. Because the, the academy was obviously created during the height of imperial imperialism, colonialism, and it was very interested in maintaining and upscaling White supremacy in the form of honorary Anglo-Saxonness. And that's the bit that people tend to forget. That whiteness is not really a genetic thing. It's a it's a kind of physical front for being an honorary Anglo-Saxon. And so the Academy, by default, honors and celebrates and enshrines all of this Anglophone stuff and completely ignores the very relevant and interesting and rich history and literature and cultural expression of. Celtic peoples who were right next door and yet they don't, you know, and, and if you if you look at population, the demographics, like demographically, why aren't we there? Like there's plenty of people with this in their in their background and their heritage. But because whiteness is a way of subsuming them, but then ignoring the actual cultural contents, it just gets swept aside. Mm,
0: mm, yes.
1: And that's unfortunately, I think people on the left don't really see that because they're only thinking in terms of racial categories.
0: Right. And are you speaking into that way, which I'm always aware of that sense of we say that race is a social construct, and yet we are treating it as more and more real and calcified in that same in the same breath, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I think that is an invisible problem or a problem that people are not aware of.
0: Right. And it allows us to have certain conversations, but not others. And then I know it silences me very quickly to say, Oh, wait, am I going to do it wrong again? And then we end up either looking the other direction and hiding out or, well, making a mistake. And that's, of course, the f- most frightening thing to do right now as a person who identifies as white to make a mistake in a conversation about race. And so instead, and that's and that's why I so admire your work. You're willing to go there into the, the, the most difficult spaces, which aren't necessarily that difficult. It's about saying, hey, these are the old stories. These are, this is what we have. This is what we can still glean. This is still up for discussion because it's still relevant because it reaches to us today in the ways that we don't understand it. And in the ways that these ideas are still very much alive in different ways.
1: Yeah. So I think if you, you know, if you center and focus on these cultural components of language and story and song, you can say that this is a welcoming community and we welcome people who want to engage in that. And on the other hand, just because your surname is McInnes and you have this genealogical tree, if you can't speak the language and you don't have any of the culture. You can't participate. You, you're not a meaningful member of the community. Mm, mm-hmm. So you have mm-hmm. to sort of question these assumptions about genealogical definitions of identity because it's not relevant from a Gallic point of view, and it's never has been. Right.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, that concept of meaningful participation, I think, is something that very much gets lost in modern America, where, you know, if you're everyone's Irish on St. Patrick's Day, and you, you know, you get schnockered and you're unofficially or officially a member of the tribe, or so you might say, and very aware of all the terrible languaging I used in that, because that's, of course, you know, I went to college in Boston. I mean, my sister used to call it amateur day, where everyone would just come out and just get started at 10 o'clock in the morning and not know how to handle themselves. But, that idea of not being able to fully participate i think is lost on a lot of folks in that sense of we have in a sense of appropriating oh that's my ancestral heritage i'm going to just borrow it for the day or the week that i'm in scotland or whatever it might be right
1: yeah and i think there's some interesting questions there around these issues about what does a real allegiance to your heritage mean
0: mm-hmm.
1: what does heritage mean what are the stories that we choose to adopt and to tell and then also what has been submerged because there was a lot of shame right there's mm-hmm. a lot of shame around poverty there's a lot of shame about forced immigration and dispossession and you know when you look at the the terrible racism that exists in irish communities around boston i mm-hmm. think we have to do more than just like shame the people that are doing bad things we have to think about what is the underlying psychic wound that they are trying to compensate for that they're sensitive to that they are overreacting to.
0: Right. And that's just interesting. Most folks meet me and they assume that, you know, I have a grandmother from Ireland or I have some very close connection. And for me, it was a total reclaiming. That said, it fascinated me in my early teens, set me on my entire scholarly trajectory. And it was not something I got directly from my family. It came from a lot of research and spending time over there. And to say yes, I at this point I feel like I do contribute to that world, but by no very little of it comes other than a couple of names came through, but so few to really know stories and no real sense of anything other than, oh yeah, everybody sailed to Canada right around the famine was really all we had.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that's true of a lot of people. There is such a sense of well, when people undergo great traumas. They tend mm. not to talk about it, right? So right. you get a lot of people who come to America because they, they're they looking for a refuge and a way to reinvent themselves from a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. And so what happens, they forget it all and they get absorbed into a sea of whiteness. And that sea of whiteness mm-hmm. means that you celebrate that Anglo-Saxon past.
0: Right, right.
1: And so what are the stories that are being intentionally forgotten and left behind? And what does the need to forget them and submerge them and repress them? What does that tell you?
0: Right. Other than it's one of the stories of the American way, we just don't like to talk about that because we believe it's something about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And meanwhile, it's that sense of how much amnesia was necessary in order to assimilate in order to become somebody who seemed like they'd fit the bill to be in the Bill of Rights, right?
1: Well, and that, again, people coming from very vulnerable backgrounds, they're looking for security. They're Mm -hmm. looking for certainty, leaving a world that didn't offer to them. So if they can become an honorary white Anglo-Saxon, that gives them a level of psychic comfort that maybe now I can finally own some land, own a house, feed my family. But that might require being not very fair to other people who cannot absorb or be absorbed by that same notion of whiteness.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. As we land this conversation, it just occurs to me that it, in some of the stories, it certainly to me through us that element of surprise when, oh, you're speaking my language. And I wonder, in some cases, it's because you look different than me. It's because you're a person of color. But I'm wondering, too, whether whether there are times when in these travels that it wouldn't have been common to be greeted. In the story of Alaska, they first spoke in English, right? And then the connection was made where they said, oh, we share this. And it goes so much deeper. But I would presume that would happen whether or not you're looking at someone who it, another person who presents as white or otherwise, oh, you know, you have this connection to me.
1: Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, people traveling far and wide in the British Empire, which of course the sun never sat on it, and in the uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the nineteenth century, would have expected that English would be the common language. And there, there are stories about people encountering each other and finding out they're both Gaelic speakers, and you know, where are you from, and starting to pinpoint their geographical location more and more, again, by using place names as a kind of way of proving that they know the territory, they know the geography, and only somebody who is a local would know that. But yeah, language is a very important marker of whether or not one is actually a Gale in these stories. And these people who are Gales don't always fit our expectations or their expectations at the time of what they thought that they would see or hear.
0: And may we all be take that with us and say, how can we be surprised? How can the world continue to defy our expectations in the best possible ways opposed to what it might sometimes do otherwise?
1: Yeah. And there there are some very interesting discussions going on now in Scotland about these issues because Scotland and Ireland are both immigrant countries now. There are people coming to these places in Europe from many other places. Some of them are refugees, some of them are, you know, migrants from other countries. And because the rest of the world is so much more multilingual, so, so much more normal in the rest of the world to speak multiple languages and to adopt the language of the home country, you get people from all kinds of backgrounds going to the Gallic medium schools in Scotland, for example. And so, you know, many Gales aren't used to that. They're they're from some small island and thinking that everybody from their island, they're familiar with them and they all look the same. And so it's unexpected sometimes. Right. So I think it's a really important reminder that this is this has always happened. There's always been a variety and a diversity of Gaelic speakers from d- different backgrounds. And that gives strength to the language. And and it gives strength to the people who now have more tools and they have more cultural background, more cultural richness to share with other people.
0: Right. It feels important to note that in the last season of the show, uh, Christian Bolden, who's a member of the African-American Irish Diaspora Network, came on the show and talked about his experience as an American, Black American man, going to Ireland for the first time. And, you know, the connections that were drawn between himself and Muhammad Ali, and, and thinking as well about Frederick Douglass's journey around Ireland all came up in this particular conversation. But part of it, too, was speaking about the new Black Irish movement of people mostly from of african descent having moved to ireland having taken you know learned gaelic in school learned learned the irish in school and starting to and having it be very important to them and their identities and so you know the rte the radio network there has done a podcast called black irish black and irish i believe so it's just something that people may want to check out as we're kind of having this conversation about all the different ways where it is it's your stories about people from Scotland going to North America and now we're watching the migrations happening across the world. How do these conversations continue to happen? Because they really are every day. It's not this calcified sense that we may have here in North America again of what identity is supposed to look like.
1: Yes, and it's much more fluid than DNA. It's it's and it's much more multifaceted. You can have multiple identities and multiple memberships in multiple communities.
0: Well, thank you so much for this multifaceted conversation we've been able to have. Michael, I'm so grateful to have you back. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about where to find you? You've had a a book out since last you were on the show.
1: I teach online, teach courses online through Hidden Glen Folk School, and that's hiddenglenfolk.org. And as you say, I have a a new anthology of Scottish Gaelic folktales translated into English called Into the Fairy Hill.
0: I will show the links to both of those so people can continue to journey with you and your wealth of knowledge of the stories, the traditions, the language. Thank you so much for sharing them with us tonight.
1: Top a lot.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through Season 3 and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub, Myth is Medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagoudi.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means Original People.